welcome to the Inside and Beyond podcast, and I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Inside and Beyond podcast brings together conversations about psychology and spirituality to inspire you to live a more fulfilling life, explore your purpose, and realize your full potential. Hello, guys. Welcome to the Inside and Beyond podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Kiris Thompson. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She, she wears so many hats. She is Marine Corps veteran. She is a podcaster and she's also psychic intuitive. Welcome to the show. I'm very happy that we finally met. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have this conversation and thank you for rolling out the red carpet for me. Perfect. Today, we're going to talk about human relationships. It's, it's a very big and juicy topic, but I want to unpack it and, and understand, first of all, who are the people with whom you don't want to build a relationship? That's a great question. I think, I think that answer can go so many different ways depending on the person because it's so subjective, right? I think first and foremost, you have to get clear with yourself on who you want to build a relationship, what types of relationships are going to add value to your life. And I think once you can answer that question, it might get a little easier to understand what relationships you don't want in your life. Obviously, if there is someone in your life who makes you feel bad in any type of way or pay attention to how your body feels, if your body is reacting around this person, if you feel anxious around this person, if you feel drained around this person, that might be your body's way of telling you that something feels off. Because you have to remember that our nervous system is part of our fight or flight. This is the part of our body that tells us if we're safe or if we're not safe. It almost has like its own brain. And even though we may not be consciously aware of things, our body is and our nervous system is. So if you're in a situation where you're feeling really anxious or you're feeling off or your body is giving you cues, pay attention to that because that can be your body's way of telling you that you're in an unsafe situation or a situation that is not conducive for your highest good. Also, if you find yourself in a situation too where you're comparing yourself a lot to this person or you're comparing yourself to others, and it's just not good for your for your well-being, that's also something to take into consideration. But on the flip side of the coin, I always tell people too to recognize your own triggers. Is this a trauma response or is this genuinely somebody who you don't want to have a relationship with? Because sometimes when, when we think about our childhood trauma and how that can affect our relationships as adults, then you start to understand that sometimes the way that we react around certain environments, situations, or people can be because we're being triggered by our past, whether we consciously know it or not know it. So again, I have to go back to knowing what kind of relationships you want in your life, getting clear on that. And then it's a little bit more easier to navigate relationships when you're trying to navigate what relationships do I not want in my life. That makes sense. Of course, it's is useful to understand what triggers you and based on that make informed decisions. However, sometimes it's just so unconscious that we have certain reactions and sometimes we don't even know that those reactions are triggered. So for instance, when I meet a guy and I feel like, you know, that he's not the one, but my body is responding positively to that. Does it always mean that he's right for me? That's right. Right. Because it may also mean that I've been triggered to respond in a certain way because it is a situation that I'm used to from childhood or from somewhere else, but is not necessarily good for me. So how to avoid those situations? Yeah. So I, I want to touch on a point you just made. Sometimes when we're around people, it may feel good. Right. Because we're like, oh, it, I feel butterflies around this person or I get the little, you know, the little feeling in my gut that can actually be your body's way of telling you that this is not a good situation. Because sometimes I just want to go back to childhood really quick, because when we're if if you are somebody who's been through childhood trauma or 
chronic stress as a child and your nervous system, which again is that fight or flight response system in our body. It's that system that tells us, okay, you have to get ready to fight or you have to get ready to flee. It's a survival method. And so when you have that, that's constantly activated when you're a child, because again, chronic stress or in a traumatic situation where you're constantly having to scan the environment, you constantly have to see who's around you to make sure that you are in a safe environment or if you're in an unsafe environment. So if that is your connection with, let's say, love, maybe your parents were always fighting around you. Maybe your parents always depended on you for emotional stability or emotional security. So if your nervous system was always activated around your home environment or your parental figures, you may now take this into your adult relationships and think that when you have an activated nervous system, when you're feeling a little anxious, when you're having a little bit of butterflies, that is associated with love. So that is familiar to you. Now you may go around somebody who doesn't activate your nervous system it may come off a little boring and maybe you may like the person. You may think they're a good person. They have good qualities. They check the boxes, but I just don't feel those butterflies around the person. I'm physically attracted to the person, but I just don't feel that spark. I don't feel that excitement. That actually might be your nervous system. That's just not being activated. So your question, if correct me if I'm wrong, was how do you avoid these situations? Well, I think that you have to get really familiar on your own triggers. I always tell people, learn about your attachment styles, learn about your own triggers, because when you get really clear on your own self-awareness on what happens with your body when you're triggered, um, when you're self-aware of your own attachment style, and you know we can get into attachment styles, but when you have the self-awareness of yourself, you'll start to understand how you react around certain people. Like I'll give me as an example. I've been in toxic relationships, like every relationship I've ever had has pretty much been a toxic situation, anywhere from super abusive to very hot and cold. But there's always had to be a high level of excitement, a high level of like high highs and low lows. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was my level of normalcy, because when I grew up with my mom, my mom was just super traumatic. You know, she's got a personality disorder. She's she was always either raging or super calm. Like I never knew how my mom was going to react to me, right? So like I was constantly scanning the environment. I was constantly listening are her are her footsteps super loud? Is she what's her mood like? What does her facial expressions look like? I was paying attention to these small little details as a child. So now as an adult, I'm super empathic and I'm paying attention and scanning everybody. I'm scanning my environment, but my nervous system was constantly used to being so elevated that that's what I thought was exciting. So every time I would get into a romantic relationship, those high highs and those low lows, although when the lows were bad, I didn't feel good. But when Mm -hmm. I would get those highs... And that dopamine was flooding in, that serotonin, that oxytocin, Mm -hmm. all those love neurotransmitters, that felt good. It felt rewarding. And that's what I thought was normal. So So I guess, sorry, I guess here there was some sort of dependency on those happy neurotransmitters that Mm -hmm. were there whenever a love event occurred, even though in the childhood you didn't necessarily know what the right love is, right? So mm. whenever it gets triggered, your body learned to be so sensitive and, and so responsive to understand every little thing about your mom, for instance, so that to respond accordingly, right? Yeah, exactly. And so when you get used to that, and you, you're, you're navigating life and you're navigating relationships. I think it's very natural to go towards what's familiar to you. So mm-hmm. if that is what you know, that is what you believe love is because that's what you were shown. That is what you learned. That is what you watched. So that's what you're naturally going to navigate towards. So I think the key here is really trying to understand that and having a lot of self awareness. And this is not something that happens overnight. Like, this is the field that I'm in and I'm 36 years old and I'm still navigating this. I still have triggers. Like I'm not magically cured and I don't know everything just because this 
this is what I do and I educate on this. If I get into a relationship now, which I'm very single, but if I got into a relationship now, would I be more secure? Absolutely. But would some some of those anxious tendencies still come up? Absolutely. So am I better? Am I able to better navigate that now? Yes, because I'm able to have that self-awareness like before I might have sent paragraphs now I may write it out but Mm -hmm. I may not send it you know so it's like certain things to be aware of so my advice to anybody who maybe went through that type of chronic stress or trauma when they were younger and they find themselves in a lot of relationships that are high highs low lows I would get really really serious about learning your own attachment styles learning your own triggers and being aware of how you feel around certain people and that's a good starting point that's great. I guess it's, it's very important to distinguish two different type of awareness. First is more like on a high level, which is just awareness of how you feel, which does not necessarily what you want from a relationship. So again, you may feel very excited, but it may be a result of triggers of a relationship that you don't want to go into. But now there is a second level of awareness, which is awareness of your own triggers, which again is developed over time. And it's not like you've developed it now and now you're using it's an ongoing journey. But the key here is really try to learn and go deeper into your reactions about other people rather than trying to just hide from them and not to look at them because that is what is going to inform you whether you are reacting and whether you're reacting and you want to continue this reaction. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing too, to be aware of is like, I get, I get the question a lot. Why is it that people who are super empathic or compassionate why do we always end up in toxic relationships? And, you know, there's not a one size fits all answer to that. But another key component is that, you know, we tend to be more compassionate. Key word. If you're super compassionate and understanding and like, I know for me, I'm the type of person I like to see the good in everybody. Right. And there are some people like you take somebody who's a true narcissist, like I'm talking true narcissistic personality disorder. They're really good at manipulation. Really, really, really good at that. So people who are super empathic and compassionate, it's not that we tend to attract more of them. We just tend to overlook some of those red flags because we see the good in that person or we understand like, okay, this person had a super traumatic childhood and that's why they're like this or that's why they do this. But but I see all the good that they do. And so we tend to look past a lot of those red flags that maybe somebody else. Yeah, we and we were super forgiving and we just need to see that you understand what you did and we're you know, we can move past it. The the problem is, is that people who are manipulative, they take advantage of that. And that's how you end up in that cycle. Because I always say, like, no one goes into an abusive relationship from the beginning saying, I want that's my guy. I want to be abused. I want to <laughs> be in a very like no one. No one goes into that wanting to have that shit in their life like we genuinely want to have a good relationship. And some people are just really good at starting out love bombing and starting out with like, you know, being super charming. And that cycle over time happens when it comes to the toxicity and the abuse. But you have to recognize really early on what you're looking for in a partner, what you're not willing to put up with deal breakers and be willing to walk away early. And that's hard to do, but you have to, especially if you know you're that type of person. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, thank you. So how to recognize a narcissist, for instance? You mentioned that those are people who are in the beginning very nice, yet very manipulative. So yes, obviously, you have to build awareness that we were talking about to really notice those things. But what else? How else can you recognize such persons? So I want to start out by saying that narcissism in general 
is a spectrum. We all have narcissistic traits. Everybody, we're mm-hmm. all guilty of it. You know, it could be when you're out with your girlfriends and you want to tell them about your recent accomplishment. That is a level of narcissism. It's healthy narcissism though, right? But then you have the spectrum that tends to go like more on the, the not so healthy side. And then you have true narcissistic personality disorder, which is like diagnosable, right? So when you have somebody who's a true narcissist, they have an inflated self ego. Like their ego is actually very fragile. Mm. Nine times out of 10, a lot of people who suffer with NPD is they had a lot of traumatic childhood. Something in their childhood was usually something happened to them or there was some kind of trauma. Uh, narcissist personality okay. disorder. Yeah. So we call it NPD for short. Sorry. And so usually there's some kind of trauma within their history, but they tend to be very, very insecure at their core. They mm. may not come off like that because they can come off like they know everything, that they know exactly who they are and they want the world to know exactly who they are as well. So what would that look like if you're navigating the dating or the relationship world? Well, we hear these terms love bombing. We hear these terms gaslighting, but those are very real terms when you're dealing with a true narcissist. So if you meet somebody within the first couple days, week, I would even say couple weeks, and they're constantly texting you, constantly calling you, constantly giving you all of this affection, telling you, I want to take you to Paris. I want to meet your family. I want you to meet my family. We're destined to be together. I know this was fate. If it's too good to be true, then typically it is. If it almost feels like, wow, like this person's kind of like, coming on a little strong now are there people who may genuinely just catch feelings very quickly maybe that's their attachment style yes but true love bombing it's too it's very quick it's very very quick because what they're doing is they're trying to shower you with everything that they can to lock you in and then reel you in they want you to get hooked and they want you to get hooked very fast so pay attention to those because you have to remember that true healthy love takes time trust no yeah trust takes time getting to know somebody takes time you cannot really truly love somebody or really know if this person is the right person in one week you know hollywood can make it that's fantasized and and make it seem like it can be but that's not necessarily how it works Mm -hmm. another thing that they do too is is once you're in this cycle with them and they've had this love bombing. You're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm so in love. This person is everything. And then they start to slowly devalue or withdraw. You know, they may, they may start to say things that are even verbally abusive or could be hurtful. And then you're wondering what happened to this like amazing person that was showering me with all this love and affection. And you may confront them with something. You may find something that they did. You may confront them with a lie. You may confront them with something that they said to you. And then they may almost switch it up on you, making it like you're the one that's crazy you know, altering your reality to make you think that, no, it's you. You're the reason why this was, this was done. You didn't find anything in my phone. That's my sister. That's not my, that's not my girlfriend. That's not another girl that I'm seeing. Like you're the crazy one. It's like so placing you, the guilt on you. That's right. And so you may find that you're going and like, you may find that you want to bang your head against a wall. And those are just some of the cycles that a narcissist will um, have in their circle of abuse. And so it's really important to, again, get really clear from the beginning what you want and what you're willing to walk away with. And if you do decide to go no contact or walk away, that is when the cycle begins again and they will love bomb you again. But it's mm-hmm. really important that if you find yourself in a narcissist abusive situation or even if it's in the beginning cycles that you block you have to cut contact like there's no leaving a door cracked open you have to cut all contact because narcissists need supply and they will find supply somewhere they need the supply to fill their ego if they're not getting it from you trust me when i tell you they will get it from somewhere because they need it to survive and if you cut them off eventually they will leave you alone but you what have if, to cut them off what if they start stretching you and saying all those things that they would do to you if you cut the content the contact completely what do you do and here's the thing too is when you are in an abusive situation 
usually when you're trying to leave is the most dangerous time. Now, I'm not saying that every narcissist gets physically abusive because that's not the case. You know, not every narcissist is physically abusing or being physically harmful to somebody. Sometimes it really is emotional abuse, which sometimes can be worse, but sometimes it's both. And sometimes the physical aspect is a big key component of that. And a lot of times too, even if they're not physically abusing, they will use emotional manipulation or emotional tactics to try to harm you. For example, like if you have kids with somebody, they may threaten to take custody of the children, or maybe they'll triangulate and get your friends to think that you did something or they may slander your name or post pictures of you on the internet, you know, things like that. So it may not be physical abuse, but maybe they'll do things in other ways. But it's really important, first of all, if you are in a dangerous situation that you get a safety plan in in order and a safety plan could include who you would contact, where would you go? Do you have money set aside? Where is a safe place that you could go to if you do find an area, if you do find a time that you can leave when, when he's gone or when she's gone? So safety plan is really important. I think finding support is going to be a key component too, because oftentimes when we're in abusive situations, they will try to isolate you from your friends, from your family. And if you talk to most victims, oftentimes they haven't had a lot of contact with family or friends for a while because they were isolated. And then they felt guilty because they went back and then they, they didn't want to feel they didn't want to feel the guilt and the shame that was associated with it to have to explain themselves to family and friends that, Hey, I went back to my abuser. So mm-hmm. that's another way how they isolate you. So I think too, though, if you talk to most people who've been through that situation, a lot of those friends and family would welcome them back and have welcomed them back with open arms. So I would say reach out to family, reach out to friends because you're going to need that support, have a safety plan and go Go no contact. And then if you have kids with someone, gray rock method, which is essentially being as boring as a rock. You only talk to them about the necessities of visitation or kids. And if you can get everything in writing or go through the courts, that's what you need to do. I know it's hard, though. It's so much easier said than done. And it's so stressful. It it really is. Imagine, But I guess for your own safety and for the happiness of your future life, you have to find this vulnerability in yourself to open up to your family, to your friends and do something in order to really be happier and and finish this Mm -hmm. type of relationship. Now, I want to talk more about attachment styles. You mentioned that before and you mentioned that in relation to love and to our parental figures and that's basically how the notion of love forms in us when we are still young. What are the attachment styles and and how to differentiate and can we change them if we want to? So there was a there was a study that was done a long time ago that I can't remember the per- the name of the person who did the study, but essentially the focus of the study was putting children in a room and they wanted to see how these children reacted when their parents left the room. Some children they gave toys to, some didn't have toys. They wanted to see, you know, if they had a distraction and their parents walked out of the room, how did they react? If they didn't have a distraction and the parent walked out of the room, how did they react? And then what was the reaction? when these parents walked back into the room. The interesting thing is that you had some children who the parents left and they did not care what toy was in front of them. They could not settle down until mom was back in the room. They were super anxious. They could not calm down. And until that mom or that parental figure was back, they could not settle into being calm, cool, and collected. But then you had some children who mom left the room And they didn't care. They were doing their own thing. And then when mom came back in the room, they still didn't want to even pay attention to mom. They still wanted to do their own thing. They weren't paying attention. And then you had some children who were content when mom left. And then when mom came back, they were like, oh, hi, mom. You know, and they were content when she came back and did Mm -hmm. want the affection. So they started to form what we call attachment styles and they started to do more studies on this. And what they. So sorry, these children were the same age, right? Because I know that with different age, the attachment also changes, right? 
Yeah, I can't remember in this specific study if the mm-hmm. children were the same age. I would assume for the consistency of the study that they were. Yeah. But yes, with attachment styles, you know, it's hard to say at what age attachment styles form. But what they've shown and what they've seen throughout time is that attachment styles start to form at a very young age in infancy. Mm-hmm. And as we go, as we get older, when it, so for example, if you have a parent who maybe constantly depends on you for their emotional regularity. So let's say you have mom and mom is always getting into fights with dad. And when she's upset and when she's crying, she's coming to you and she's depending on you as a child to console her. So you are now as the child, the consoler for mom. And then sometimes maybe she's yelling at you. So you can tell from an outside looking in, like that can be very confusing for a child, right? This child doesn't know if mom loves her. This child doesn't know if mom's mad. This child doesn't know if, am I supposed to console mom? Mm -hmm. That was me growing up. So Mm -hmm. now you take this adult, we'll say me in this example, as I was starting to navigate relationships, I thought I had to fix everybody because that was my job when I was a child. I had to fix my mom. I had mm. to console my mom when she was going through her rages or when she was going through her emotional regularities. So now I'm thinking it's my responsibility to fix other people, which is why I ended up in a lot of relationships with men who were broken, who needed to be fixed, who had these unhealed wounds. And I thought I can help them. I mm. can make them better. So you may have somebody now who goes into relationships people pleasing or thinking they need to fix people and that is what we might call the anxious attacher so people who have more of an anxious attachment style they tend to be a little bit more needy I would say I don't like using the word needy but their needs seem to be unmet and Mm -hmm. if their needs are unmet they might feel more anxious with a partner they may think that their partner is going to leave them they may have a fear of abandonment or a fear that their partner is not going to stay with them. They may have a fear of speaking up or stating their needs because if they state their needs, their partner may leave. Because remember, if they were a child and they were taught not to state their needs or they were punished when they're, when they stated their needs or they were taught that they were supposed to be the person that was consoling their parents, they're being taught you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be adhering to other people's needs, not your own. So now Mm -hmm. as an adult, I may be afraid to speak up. I may be afraid to say, I need this in a relationship because if I do, he may leave me. And those might be your anxious attachers. So those are the kids that are, sorry, the the adults that are growing up from those kids from the first group, right? Who Mm -hmm. were super anxious when the parental figure left in the experiment. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the question is, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, was, mm-hmm. was a child naturally just anxious or did this stem from our attachments and, and how our parents, you know, interacted mm-hmm. with us? And I think as time has gone on and they've done more research, they've, they've seen that it really stems from how we interact with our parents and those roles that our parental figures play when we are young into young adulthood. So I think it just goes to show that it's really important as parents too to, you know, give your kids the freedom to be able to speak up, to be able to state their needs and to create a really secure environment. Because now you take somebody, let's say you have somebody who Maybe their parents were not around as much. Maybe their parents did not give them the needs that they needed as a child to navigate their childhood correctly. Maybe they grew up in a very abusive environment. And so those might be the avoiders. They may grow up in relationships and now they're navigating the world. They want intimacy, but it's like they crave it. But then when they get it or get close to getting it, they get really nervous because Mm. they're so they're so hung on to their own autonomy and their own safety that this is a threat to that. So those might be the ghosters. Those might be the ones who don't text as much or Mm. 
cling on and and want a relationship but then when they get it they back off and for some reason anxious attachers and avoidance they tend to attract each other and that's probably the worst (laughs) worst ones and then you have secure attachers and secure secure is really what you want to aim for secure attachers are okay with a little bit of autonomy they're okay with you know uh, a partner who needs a little bit more from them they're okay with a partner who needs space to answer your question of can you go from an anxious or an avoidant to a secure yes you can Hmm. does it take a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-insight absolutely i am a recovered anxious attacher but i still have anxious tendencies so I may date somebody who I really, really like, and maybe they're giving me all the attention that I want and that I crave. And then all of a sudden, because again, I'm constantly scanning my environment for safety, right? Mm -hmm. So their tone might be off, or maybe they don't text me like they're usually texting me. And I notice that pattern because I'm so keen into paying attention to patterns because of my trauma. Mm -hmm. So now I'm getting triggered because I'm an anxious, a recovered anxious attacher. And my first notion is they're going to leave or something's changed. They don't want to be with me anymore. And my trigger would be to write a text. Is everything okay? I feel like something's off with you. Just let me know. That's what I would probably do. Now, I may write it out or I may call a girlfriend, but I'm not going to send it. I give it time. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is that maybe they were just busy. Maybe they really just were genuinely busy and that those were my trauma responses. However, I've also seen where I was right. And nine times out of 10, I have been. But the great thing about it is I reacted differently and I know that, okay, I'm like, this isn't me. This is the them issue. And if they choose to do something else or if they don't want to be in this situation or if they can't bring to the table what I want, that's okay because I know what I need in a relationship. And now I've learned to let that go. So they anxious attachers can be secure. Avoidance can be secure. It takes time. It takes consistency. And you might have triggers, but you can change to being secure. That's perfect. That's very encouraging. And well done for, for doing this for yourself. I guess it does take a lot of awareness mm-hmm. and understanding of the tools, such as now you use time as a tool to sort of uh, delay your reaction in order mm-hmm. to to make it better, which is also a very useful one. Um, I guess I wanted to ask also about how besides forming the right awareness about things, we can heal from certain traumas that we had in the childhood. I know that you did some shadow work and I wanted to understand what it is about and how exactly it helped us heal. Is it something, is like a different tool to understand your psyche or it's just another type of the same old awareness that we are talking about? Would love to learn more. I love this question. Okay, yeah, I get to get into the spiritual stuff. Okay, so I have a very clinical brain and of course I have my spiritual side. So I love connecting both of them because I think for people who are not spiritual or who want to be, but just don't really know how or they don't really know too much about it, it, they they think it's like a bunch of hippie stuff that they're listening to. But what I want to start out by saying is that everything around us is energy, everything. The way that you are watching this podcast or listening to this podcast right now is because energy exists. We don't see it, but it's measurable and we know it's there. So your thoughts are energy. You as a human, that is energy. And so you have to understand that concept first before you can move on to understanding what shadow work is and what healing is. Now, I am a big proponent for clinical work, meaning that if you have trauma, evidence-based therapies do work. There's so much research on it, and it's really important that you find somebody who knows how to do trauma modalities, meaning that like, listen, there's a lot of coaches out there and there's a lot of great coaches out there, but it's really important that you find somebody that has that skill set to do modalities such as cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. EMDR, you know, those clinical therapies, they are helpful. 
but I also am a big proponent for spiritual work as well because there's so there's something so powerful about spirituality and healing and I think it's really connecting with your higher self to understand, first of all, that you're not just human living a spiritual experience. You're a spiritual being living a human experience. We all are connected consciously. And again, when you understand that everything is energy, you understand why and how we're all connected. So doing shadow work is really at its core just diving deep within yourself. A lot of times when we go through traumas, we want to avoid them. It doesn't feel good. It feels uncomfortable. So if we can just sweep it under a rug and forget or pretend that it's not there, that's what we do naturally as humans because we don't want to feel stuff that makes us feel like shit. We don't want to do stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable. No one does. Who does? I no don't. One does. <laughs> right. But, but the thing is, is that our body doesn't forget. Our body remembers. And even if you unconsciously don't remember things, it's going to come up in some way. So when you're doing shadow work, you can do things like journaling, even processing through meditation, you know, really getting to know yourself. And you don't necessarily need a therapist for this, but you may find that it brings up some unhealed wounds. So I'll give you an example. When my grandfather passed away when I was 17, my mom and I had moved to Florida a couple years before. My grandfather did not want to come with us. And I grew up with my grandfather. And I held on to this guilt that we left him and that he died. And I never mm. got to see him again. I didn't really know how I was feeling for years. Now, mind you, I'm 37. So when I started to go through my spiritual awakening, like when I was like 33, it was a couple years ago, mm -hmm. I, I felt this urge to write a letter to him. And as I'm writing this letter to him, all of this like just energy and emotions just came out. I just couldn't believe how much I was holding in. And, you know, when I did that, I'm like, wow, like I cannot believe I was holding on to that for so many years. And so even just doing stuff like journaling can be so helpful to process the emotions and process the traumas. And that's really just all shadow work is. It's just processing things that you're holding on to, getting to know your higher self on a more spiritual level and understanding that you are a spiritual being we all have spirit guides we all have that guidance you can always connect and ask them for help as well and that's the beautiful thing about it but i also believe in clinical therapy and you can do both and i always say to like find time for just mindfulness because we live in a society that's like the first thing that we check when we wake up is our phone of course literally and, and we, the last thing we see <laughs> and that's the last thing we see we're always subjected to negativity we're always seeing stuff online i looked on my phone the other day and i had like 10 hours of screen time i'm like that that's that's too that's like an, it's insane you have to get outside and just be with yourself and the thing about it and i think a lot of us don't do it because it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable sitting with your own shit it, because we don't do it. But if you practice this and you practice mindfulness and you practice just just go outside without your phone, sit outside for 10 minutes with your bare feet on the ground and see what happens. And even doing that as shadow work and just having those small changes in your life will make a world of difference. That's super powerful. And I absolutely love this conversation because that's the whole idea of my podcast to bridge psychology and science and clinical work with spirituality. And I really like how you connected it all beautifully. And I love the fact that you mentioned that spirituality is not just you know, woo-woo stuff, but it's also about mind and body and the energy that connects it all. And if we have certain traumas that we are not necessarily be consciously aware of, that they're still inside us, they may be stuck in our emotions, they can be stuck in our bodies, they can produce certain pains in our bodies that we wouldn't even be aware of. And there's so many sources and work that has been done, especially by ancient cultures, that detailed the way how the body may be connected to certain emotional pains. And it's fascinating. And I think in the West, generally, we tend to overlook a little bit this big part of what makes us a human being and only focus on, you know, 
science or clinical work, which is nothing wrong with that. But when we talk about psychology, it often comes in the context of if you have a disorder, you need to treat it. And it, it somehow puts you in the position that you, something is wrong with you and you need to be mm -hmm. fixed. And it basically disempowers you from doing anything with your life. Whereas if you look in the situation from a different angle and realize that you have so many other resources that you can leverage from within yourself, you can shift your perspective, you can work your traumas, you can really change this energy balance within yourself. And that's empowering. That's what you can do to really make your life better and of better quality and more enjoyable. Yeah, my spiritual awakening changed my life. I, you know, I was never the type of person, I was never spiritual. I didn't grow up in like a religious household. My mom, she's Brazilian and Palestinian. So, you know, very Muslim Catholic upbringing. And so for me, she didn't expose me to anything. She had, she has religious trauma. So she didn't put that on me. But when all of a sudden I just felt this urge to get a reading from someone and I did. And she's like, you know, you, you're very psychic. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of, I, I, I agree with that. Sometimes I know things before they happen. I don't know how, Interesting. But, but I've always like, I would always attribute it to overthinking, but then it would happen. And so I knew I was always very psychic in a way, but I never really knew the word to put to it. Mm -hmm. And so after that happened, I just felt like this really strong urge to buy tarot cards. I don't know why, never picked up a deck in my life. Within two weeks, I'm not lying, within two weeks I opened a business and I wow. started reading for other people. I started off from donations and then as time went on, it just kind of grew and grew. But the interesting thing about it is that I have found with a lot of my clients that have had, that have trauma or going through serious stuff with relationships, they find more healing through the readings that I've done than they've had in four or five years of therapy. Again, not negating oh, therapy, wow. but there's just something so powerful about spirituality and energy. And when you have this light bulb that goes off, it's like, I get it now. Like now I understand why I have to do this work. Now I understand, you know, why I had this relationship with the person. I don't know. I feel like it almost just takes you from like you're on the field and you only see one view to now you're in the stands and you see everything around you. It just gives you a different perspective on life, on healing and on yourself. And for me, that was what was so powerful in my life. And I never knew I would be doing what I'm doing now. And here I am, you know, and wow. so I think that's the powerful, that's how powerful spirituality can be. That's super powerful and super interesting. I have two questions for you here. First, sure. is your psychic ability about just somehow strong intuition, just knowing stuff or it's something else? And the second one is just to tell me more about tarot cards. I'm hearing sure. about this on every corner, but I never actually got to investigate what they're about and what exactly, like generally the readings would tell you. Is it about your future or is it about something about you internally? Yeah, yeah so me. no, great questions. Um, okay, so let's start with intuition. Everybody has it. Everyone's got intuition. You have it. I have it. Every human on this earth has it. Now, do we ignore it a lot? All the time. For sure. So, you know, we can have this intuitive feeling that says, like, turn left. And we turn left and we avoid it an hour of traffic. Or something tells us, like, go pick up the kids early. And then maybe there was a lockdown at the school. You know, we've all had it happen at some point in our life. Some people call it luck. Some people call it intuition. But I think as a human species, we're all aware of this inert feeling inside of us that just tells us what to do sometimes. Now, again, I'm going to go back to everything is energy. So energy has a measurable vibration. We know this to be true. It's a scientific fact, including us as humans, including the earth, including anything around you. It all has a measurable vibration. So when you understand this and you understand that as I'm speaking to you now, that has a vibration. Believe it or not, it's got a measurable vibration. I do believe it, yeah. Yeah, so 
when you are on a certain vibration in your lifetime, right? Like, let's say you're going through a lot of stuff right now. You're going through a breakup. You're going through a divorce. You're going through all this stress. Your vibration's very low. And so if you're going through a really great time in your life and things are happening for you and you're happy, your vibration might be higher. There's something called the law of attraction. And the law of attraction states that like attracts like. So the vibrational the, the vibrational frequency that you're on is the vibration that you're going to match. So you may be in a time in your life, like if you can look back and remember when all these good things just started happening to you, or maybe there was a day when you're like, nothing is going right today. And that's because you were on a vibration and that vibrational match, that's what was matching towards your energy. Mm-hmm. Now, when you understand this, you can understand intuition a little bit better. Now, some people who are really, really super empathic or really super psychic, we may have a very high vibration. And if you are on a higher vibration and you come across somebody who is a lower vibration, you're just going to feel like something is off with the person. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've come across somebody that you're like, I don't know what it is about this person. It just feels off. I can't really put my my instinct on it. That is your intuition that's going off. And there's really a scientific component to it. You are picking up on that person's lower vibrations. Now, some people have a little bit more keen of an intuition why who knows i don't know i can't i wish i can say i knew why i have like this strong intuition i wish i could say i know why like i literally would pick up on things before that they would happen with people especially when it comes to men like my psychic (laughs) abilities with men's bullshit was through the roof so i think that some people just have a naturally stronger intuition and also to remember if you've been through childhood trauma you're you're always scanning your environment. So there also may be other reasons why you're you're super empathic because you might be noticing body cues, footsteps, room environments, how is the person dressed, how is their facial expressions. So you may also have somebody who's scanning those small little cues that like a typical person wouldn't and that's why their intuition is so strong as well. So there's also that clinical component. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to tarot, um tarot is a tool. So just like prayers is a tool, you know, you're praying. That is a tool to connect with your guides, with your angels, with your spiritual team. Tarot is the same way, you know, so every tarot deck has 78 cards in it, right? Mm -hmm. I always keep them on hand. So every card has like a different meaning, but it's up to, it's, it's really like not, there's not a rule book to it, right? So I may interpret a certain card a certain way. Okay. So for example, Let's take the devil. All right. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that are listening, there's a card called the devil. It's got this mean looking devil on the front. If someone sees this, they're like, I don't like that card. That's scary as hell. This is evil. And it's not. So you may interpret this one way, right? But it depends on the question. So when I'm connecting, let's say I'm doing a reading for you, right? And mm-hmm. I'm connecting with you. I'm, I'm connecting with your energy. I'm connecting with your guides. And I'm also asking my guides to connect with yours. So it depends on your question. Let's say you're asking me about your boyfriend. And you want to know, what are your boyfriend's intentions? If I pull this card and I see the devil, I'm going to say, well, he may not have the best intentions. He may be a little impulsive. He may be somebody that will do some sneaky stuff. He may not have the best intentions in terms of um, what he wants in a relationship. He might be more manipulative, you know, or so it could it basically, be. It's mm-hmm. basically depends on how you will, t- which card you will take randomly, right? So there is mm-hmm. a randomness component, right? You don't choose the card intentionally. You just pick it randomly. Is yeah. So, so some people, they split their deck. Um, I have my microphone in front of me. I like to kind of go like this. So like, for example, I'm asking about you right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm asking about you, they're saying that you're somebody like who is really good at projects. You might, it might be your podcast. You might be somebody who's really focused on these areas. Maybe you're somebody who's very grounded. You might be somebody who's very career focused or career driven, but you might be somebody who's had disappointments in your life. And this could sometimes represent, I don't know you know you, but like this might be somebody who's an immigrant. It could be somebody who travels, somebody who likes different cultures or who likes to travel. So it could be certain things like, yeah, it could be certain things like that. So it just depends on 
every reading that I do is different and it just depends on the person, depends on the questions. And it's just a way of connecting. There's nothing evil about tarot, but it is how you use it and it's your intentions to use it. But Mm. it's very real. I will say that tarot has given me more more guidance and more connections with source god whatever you call it than any bible than any church and i know for a fact it's real because i get valid uh i get i get proof every day when i do this every day so that you cannot ever tell me that this isn't real i've done i've done over a thousand readings and there's there's no question for me Wow. And those cards that you've just picked for me, were those, again, just random cards you were picking without looking or? Yep. I just shuffle. Okay. So like if I'm like, I was just in my head, like, oh, just tell me, tell me like about her as a person. So if I'm just like, and sometimes they'll come Mm. out. So, so if I'm asking about you, the very first card that popped out is the Empress. The Empress is very, (laughs) yeah, she's, she's very connected with her divine feminine. She's very nurturing. She's very beautiful. She has like this divine feminine energy about her that is very nurturing. And even if you're not a mom, I don't know if you are or not, but you can, you can be very maternal. So people might even come to you naturally for um, advice or for comfort because naturally the Empress is a very maternal and maternal and comforting person. So you probably have a very comforting energy about you and it could also be in this lifetime that you're meant to be a mom you know that's it's it's a (laughs) very very it's a very maternal card but it often represents it doesn't necessarily mean the person's a mom but it can be very mom-like energy but it's very very connected with the divine feminine it's a great card to have interesting thank you Mm -hmm. that's great to hear well, you know, you, you, you say all those good <laughs> things about me, so I forgot my next question. <laughs> ah, yeah. The next question was, you mentioned that you're asking your guides and spirits to help you. How do they do this? Either just in your head, creating a question and visualizing this connection with your spiritual guides. Is that it? Or is something else? I, I talk out loud a lot. I, I honestly do. Like my daughter's so used to it. She, <laughs> um, no, so I actually talk out loud. But when I'm when I'm doing my readings, I actually like to write them out. Sometimes I do them on the phone, but most of the time I'm writing. And so when I'm connecting, the first thing I do, it's just part of my process. I sit here and I ask my guides, please just surround me with love and light. Um, please protect me from any lower vibrational energy. Because sometimes people that have heavy shit, I don't want that connecting with me. Like, I don't want that. I don't want any lower vibrational stuff around my aura and my home. So I ask for only high vibrational energy and, and spirits. So when I do that and I kind of get an okay, I connect with the person by their birth name and I ask for guidance. I ask for permission. And then once I do that, I will ask for what they need to know or depending on if the, the client wants me to ask a specific question. But I ask. I'm so sorry. I, I put this on do not disturb twice. <laughs> That's and okay. I don't and I don't know why it keeps going off. I think it's because I'm connected with my mm-hmm. headphones. It's, it's it keeps going through. I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, you'll have to edit that part out. But yeah, yeah so well. when when I'm connecting with someone, I'm connecting with their spirit guides. I'm asking for permission and typically i don't hear things i'm not hearing words i'm not hearing um anything that's coming through but i do feel it and when i feel it i usually feel the presence on my back and so when somebody is like more psychic or more empathic they tend to have more guides than the average person Mm -hmm. so i will feel that but yeah it's it's not it's not like a super crazy process for me and you know, I've never had anything bad happen. It's always for the highest good of the person, but it's very, very real. And I use tarot for everything. I use tarot if I'm going on a date with someone. I want to know what their intentions are. I use tarot to make decisions. And it's just a tool in your toolbox to connect with your guides or to get guidance in your life, whether it's career, love, decisions, or you just want to learn how to get more spiritually connected. You can even ask about past lives. There's so many things that you can do with tarot. It's not a bad thing i think the 16th century is like burn this the witch at the stake we're we're not there anymore yeah so. you're not there thanks god <laughs> well yeah. that's super interesting and maybe last question on that why do you refer to the guides as plural are there many and you know them by name or or it's just a the, the expression that you make great question so 
I refer to guides because most of us have more than one. We always have at least one guide who's with us from life, but sometimes it's even loved ones that can be our guides that can come in and out during different aspects of our life, you know, transitions, weddings, birthdays, things like that. I do see that people who are in positions of healing to help others, like if they're psychic intuitives, nurses, doctors, podcasters, when they're spreading the word or helping other people in some way, they do tend to have more guides because they Mm. need more help to do these things. So we typically have multiple. I don't, I'm not somebody who can be like, oh, you have five. I don't see them. I don't hear them, but I feel them. And I, what I do hear is vibration. So I hear like really high pitches sometimes. Mm. So like the pitches will be different. And if, um, so it's really weird. I know this sounds crazy, but like if I'm doing a reading or even sometimes when I'm doing something with me and I hear like a really high pitch sound, it's usually my cue to pay attention to something. Mm. And, um, I always tell people to pay attention to synchronicities. Like if you see one, one, one a lot, if oh, you're yeah. constantly seeing a certain type of bird, if you're constantly seen something that's a synchronicity in your life they often will use that to try to get your attention in some way or to sometimes just say hey we're here Um, but to answer your question yes we usually have more than one guide how many that's questionable Um, some people claim to know names I'm not one of them Um, I'm a very ethical reader so I'm the type of person if I don't know I'm going to tell you I don't know and Mm -hmm there's this stigma that psychic intuitives know everything and that's just not the case like i can see it's like a puzzle i can pull cards for you and i'm interpreting what i see but you may be the one to know what this means Mm. so i don't know everything interesting Mm -hmm. yeah wow that's beautiful yeah i love the synchronicity topics as well and and i can talk a lot about that too um it's just i always thought that whenever I see a synchronistic image or, or event, I always interpreted it as, you know, I'm walking in the right direction in a way in life mm-hmm. rather than they would like to, you know, encourage my attention, which may be also to protect me. So I don't know, maybe I guess it depends on, on, on the case by case basis, but yeah, it's, it's interesting too. And again, it, goes back to the awareness not only of yourself but of the world around you and the more little things you notice the more information and and also like positive feeling and somehow protection and, and safety feeling you get because once you start appreciate these little things once you start notice them you realize you're actually not alone and even if you mm-hmm. sometimes feel lonely once you start realizing and noticing those energies or synchronicities or or different presences, different sounds, you actually realize that you're not alone. And I'm just realizing that as I'm talking and I'm getting goosebumps. it's, It's a very interesting realization. Thank you for that. And no, you hit the nail on the head. Like for you, if you see these synchronicities and to you, that means that you're walking the right path and that's what it is. You know, there's not a one size fits all Mm. that when you see one, 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 this angel number means this. And I think we have to kind of get out of this like linear path of if I do this, it means this. If I do that, it means this. It it means whatever it means for you, right? So again, like I can pull cards, right? And I always tell people like, oh, I want to learn tarot. Okay, but... You can look at the meanings, but again, like you may pull a card and you may think like, okay, I just pulled the devil again, but let's say you, pl- you pull the queen of cups. Well, you know, that you can look it up online. And it's like, oh, the queen of cups is somebody who's intuitive. It represents a person, but not all the time. Like I may look at it differently. Like if depending on the context, I may look at it like, well, you have to use your intuition more. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is a person for mm-hmm. me. It could just represent somebody's intuition or you need to be really intuitive about the, the about the situation you're in. So my point is, is that you just have to discern what your spirituality means to you. There's no one size fits all. There's mm-hmm. no right or wrong way when it comes to spirituality and your relationship with your guides, your relationship with your higher self. And if you're listening to this right now and you're like, I have no idea what all of this means. I don't know what they're talking about, but I would love to learn more. I would say the first thing that I would start doing is meditation. Meditate in the morning. 
even if it means like five minutes and you're thinking about what you have to do for the day, that's okay. Just start with meditation. Start with that mindfulness and start with those mindfulness practices. That is a form of spirituality. You don't have to do tarot. This is my thing, right? But that may not be your thing. You may have other means of spirituality. Your spirituality might be walking through nature and just knowing that there's something bigger than us. And, mm-hmm. and you can start there. Exactly. And the meditation, again, doesn't necessarily have to mean you're sitting cross-legged and you're, you know, trying to avoid these thoughts about what you're about to do next. That's right. But it's also about just practicing this attention to little details of the present moment rather than on the present thoughts about past or future. Mm-hmm. So once you start, I guess it's a good flag or, or indicator whenever you catch yourself thinking about your past and future, it means that you are A, now more aware because you've just caught yourself doing that and B, that's your key to start paying attention to little things around you rather than your thoughts. That's right, yeah. And I think too, like with spirituality, the beautiful thing about it is you realize the things that you don't need. Like the things that I thought were important before in my life, I realize now and I'm like, they really have no meaning in my life. Like they're my my priority of what's important to me has changed so much. Like I value my time now. I value my time with my daughter. I value my experiences with her. I don't need things. Like I used to think like I need to have a Gucci purse and I need to have this and I need to have this type of image. And now, although I still like to be a girl and I still like to wear makeup and do, you know, pretty things and get pedicures and stuff, but it's not important to me. Like my priority is helping people. My priority is being in service to others. Yeah, it's great mm-hmm. to make money, but am I going to find fulfillment in that? No. My fulfillment is when I get an email from somebody that says, your podcast helped me leave my abusive marriage. Your reading helped me realize that I can heal. And when you realize that there's so much more out there than us and that we're here to really help each other elevate and, and be better humans, everything in your life will change. Same here. And that's exactly why I started this podcast as well. Thank you so very much. It was such an amazing conversation. I've learned so much and it just left me feeling very grateful and and unhappy. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me on the show. It was such an honor. 